You finally decided to learn how to ice skate, so you ordered the essentials every aspiring ice skater needs. A nice pair of blades, a shiny new helmet, and a good set of knee pads. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping, which you put those rewards towards an essential piece of post-skating recovery, a heating pad. Visit bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding to apply now. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Galbraith with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina, who is covering these NBA Finals for 538, GQ, and lots of other places online. Michael, we had a very interesting Game 3 comeback performance by the Miami Heat, taking that game, you know, avoiding the sweep, saving face, and all those good things. And Game 4 was super tense, super stressful. You could feel it in the building. I'm sure it came across on television. Everyone's yelling at the referees. Guys are going back and forth. Um, Lots of people stepping up late in the game, whether it's KCP, Anthony Davis, Tyler Hero had some moments, Jimmy Butler's doing his thing. But I think the the central takeaway from that game uh, wound up being the Lakers' decision to shift Anthony Davis onto Jimmy Butler as a defensive strategy. Um, Yahoo Sports has reported it was actually Anthony Davis's idea. I guess he was frustrated after watching Jimmy Butler score 40 points uh, in Game 3. He wanted to have a, a chance to defend him. Um, it wasn't like he erased Jimmy Butler from the planet, but certainly he was limiting Butler's offensive scoring effectiveness. Anthony Davis obviously was the, the runner-up for Defensive Player of the Year. He's a very versatile, very long defender. They always like to say he can guard one through five, Michael, and uh, you know he showed a little bit of that um, in Game 4. I am curious more than anything, did you see this one coming? Because I love to try to guess the adjustments, you know, before they happen or or debate the adjustments before they happen. And I think I've just been in the bubble too long. Maybe my brain just kind of hit a wall and and turned into mush. But I did not see this uh, particular matchup adjustment coming. How about you? Not to the degree that they used it, for sure. Especially being that this was Bam Adebayo's first game back from the from the neck injury um you know uh, LeBron I assume that they would just maybe switch up some of the coverages with LeBron particularly late where he would you know they would hedge a little bit more on those screens when they were hunting Rondo and KCP uh when the Heat were hunting those guys uh, instead of just kind of passively switching particularly late in the game but no, I did not see Anthony Davis assuming that responsibility, um, and I thought that it was it was smart. I mean, I think that Anthony Davis is the best defender in the world. No disrespect to Giannis, who is great. Um, I think that Anthony Davis is slightly better, and I mean, he sh- he showed it. <laughs> the fact that he can be that mobile on the perimeter, the fact that you know he was fighting through screens, um, the fact that uh, you know when Jimmy does not have the ball. You're kind of able to you you don't ignore him, obviously, but he's not the same exact type of threat in terms of uh, someone spacing the floor. So he's uh, Anthony Davis is also able to uh, impact the paint a little bit. So, yeah, it's it's a pretty brilliant move all in all. For sure. Well, let's talk. Let's get back to that Giannis point here in a second. Let's start with what they would have seen on the tape from game three, because it would have been a lot of bodies just sprawled out, not able to handle 
Jimmy Butler's physicality going to the basket. And it's a story we've seen kind of repeat over and over. I mean, when Milwaukee was using smaller guys on him, he was able to kind of bulldoze there. He obviously is among the league leader in free throws this year. Um, Jason Tatum had his moments on the wrong side of Jimmy Butler's physicality in the Eastern Conference Finals. I mean, go right down the list. I mean, Danny Green, KCP, any of the other guards just were not cutting it. And I think when they did try to use LeBron... Um, you know, Jimmy's pretty crafty off the dribble. He's not the fastest player. He's not the quickest, but it did seem like LeBron maybe, you know, especially late in games, wasn't like having the the best time there. So I'm sure that the Lakers coaches were kind of looking around and saying like, what can we do to really stop this flow? And with Davis, you know, obviously I think the number one goal you have defending Butler is to kind of goad him into three-pointers, right? Just like back off of him. But you can't back off of him completely because he's a pretty capable mid-range jump shooter. He likes to get to that shot. He's really comfortable there. And he's been shooting it very well in the postseason. So there's this idea of like you can sucker him, but only to a certain degree. And uh, so you've got to have length to challenge those shots, basically. You know, If you're going to back off the threes, you still have to be able to challenge the mid-range. And then, of course, he wants to get to the basket, and length is going to be you know, helpful there. You know, Davis just checks those boxes basically perfectly. Now, is he going to get beat off the dribble sometimes? But is there anybody better at recovering to block shots at the rim in the NBA right now than Anthony Davis? Is there anybody else in that conversation that you can think of? Um, you know, I think Gobert... Just because it's a little bit slower, tends to get beaten more, and he does, you know, have a, a pretty high quantity of block shots, you know, where he's able to recover back into a play because he's even longer than Davis. But it's a really unique skill set to be able to make that type of play. It's like a half court chase down almost, if you want to look at it that way. And Davis just does a great job at it without fouling a lot of times. You know, I think usually bigs might get into guys' bodies when they try to do that, or they're, you know, they're stretching out too far, they lose control. But he's, uh, you know, he's very adept at meeting layups at the rim after he's been beaten off the dribble. And, you know, I think that's a, a real threat for LA's defense. It's something that he um, deploys actually when he's an off-ball defender too. But you add up all of these things, and he made Jimmy's night a lot more difficult than really any other Lakers defender had throughout this series. AD is a terror. I mean, it's really no other way to put it. I mean, you talked about how uh, he has this advantage where he's able to kind of sag off because of his arms and his wingspan and his closing speed. But, uh, you know, one of the other things is like, even when you want to give Jimmy the outside shot, what makes Miami so difficult to defend is what they'll do is they'll just run Duncan Robinson or Tyler Hero up for a, a dribble handoff and then they'll be wide open for three. So you have to kind of respect Jimmy and any other ball handler, including Bam Adebayo when they, or Kelly Olynyk, when they have the ball on the perimeter and you're a big man. It makes it really difficult to defend those guys. Um, but, I mean, AD is number one for me when it comes to the specific sequences that you're describing where, you know, he gets beat off the bounce and then he needs to recover. His arms are just ridiculous, like, and he can jump out of the gym. So uh, AD's there. I mean, I'll put Bam in that category, to be honest. I think Bam's closing speed and his physicality and his Well, he's got the explosive burst, right? I think Bam, For like, sure. when he recovers, it's, it's a more explosive recovery, right? Um, mm-hmm. Whereas AD, he's just sort of, like, gliding smoothly through space to get there. And AD feels inevitable, you know what I mean? Like... Even after someone gets beat, there's just no... Like, you expect the block, I think, which is not the case. Like, you're not 
you're not amazed necessarily or surprised, I should say. Whereas when most other guys come back and make a play like that at the at the rim, you're like, oh my goodness, that was incredible. With AD, it's like uh, that was expected. I expected this man to do this. He is the best uh, defender in the world. At least that's what I think. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, you know, I think if I was the Miami Heat, you know, I was a little bit surprised at their hesitancy to. Uh, to do what they did, I guess, to LeBron James at the end of Game 3 when Jimmy had so much success. I mean, I would expect more of that hunting that they did where, you know, you bring Hero, you bring even Kendrick Nunn up to set screens and uh, try to force switches. Uh, You know, it's easier said than done, and I'm sure that AD will be very active and, you know, dipping under those screens and still being able to recover, which is something that LeBron... Uh, you know, he could do, but I think that AD is just a different animal in this conversation. Um, So, like, beyond that, I don't know what adjustments you make if you're Miami. It's just kind of like they need more out of the supporting cast. And this is where, you know, someone like Dragic would be humongous because Dragic was the other, like, source of offense, offensive engine for the Miami Heat. Uh, And not having him there, it just, it really hurts when you take away the, the, the plan A. That eight years of age difference between LeBron and Anthony Davis really shows through. And also the fact that Davis has never won a ring before. That's where it shows through on the energy, on the on the perimeter switching and stepping out and fighting through screens and that kind of stuff. Because you could just do stuff at 27 that you can't do at 35, especially sure. late in games <laughs> in the fourth quarter. Like... Uh, LeBron knows what to do, right? LeBron's seen every coverage on on both ends, but there's just a certain level of energy and hunger, I think, to uh, to Davis at this point. And you know, it's um, it's a major characteristic of the Lakers' defense as a whole. I mean, he's setting the tone for them, and they were very active. It was a grinding game for, like I said, very stressful. They were able to pull it out with like a big shot by KCP in the corner. Obviously, Davis hits the dagger. LeBron had a real tough and one coming back with his left hand. I mean, there were some nice offensive moments for the Lakers, but they definitely won game four, you know, kind of defense first. And uh, it wasn't always pretty, um, although it is really fun to watch Davis do what he does. The reason why I wanted to talk about, um, you know, this adjustment and whether we saw it coming and all of that. Maybe we should have seen this coming, right? Because didn't we get a preview all the way back in the second round where Jimmy's going absolutely nuts in the fourth quarter against the Milwaukee Bucks? And there's this question post game directly to Giannis Did you ask for the defensive responsibility on Jimmy Butler? You're the presumptive at that point, defensive player of the year. This guy's lighting you up, he's overwhelming um, your smaller guards, he's getting to his spot against uh, your wings. Giannis has some length. Giannis is, you know, obviously also in this category of kind of a one to five um, defender, supposedly able to guard every position. Is he as ideally equipped to defend Jimmy Butler as Anthony Davis? You can make a strong argument that no, he's not, uh, because Davis, I think, moves a little bit better um, and is longer. Uh, but at the same time, you can make a strong argument that, uh, you know, you want to put your de- best defensive player on the best defensive team in the league on the opposing player's star in that moment. And, you know, some stars would say, I want that responsibility like Anthony Davis did, um, you know, before game four. So this all just kind of begs the question. I mean, did is this another example or further evidence of Milwaukee's sort of coaching blunders or strategic blunders or refusal to... Um, you know, to adapt and adjust within a series because 
I just find it very hard to believe that Frank Vogel and Anthony Davis would have ever had a meeting like the Bucks, where it's like, nope, we're going to stick to our plan. We're going down with it, right? Let's just go ahead and not, um, you know, not adjust anything when Jimmy Butler's going nuts. Had they taken that same approach in game four, they probably lose game four, right? I didn't know that Rich Paul was my co-host today. This is, I'm stunned. I, I, you coming at Giannis like this, I did not expect it. No, no, no. I'm just, look, I'm frustrated <laughs> on Giannis's behalf because I just think that, like, good playoff coaching, you've got to be adaptable. We've talked about it a million times, right? Nick, Nurse, uh, Eric Spolstra, these guys are, you know, reacting in some cases possession to possession, and it just feels like Coach Bud's out there saying, oh, we're just going to do it our way or the highway. Let's just see what happens. And, you know, as you're seeing, here's counter evidence. What happens if you put your de- best defensive player on Jimmy Butler, who is a sensational offensive force, but he's not the best player in the league, right? So if you're meeting strength with strength, you have a real chance to win that. And Milwaukee got absolutely blitzed by Jimmy uh, in the moments that mattered in that series. Yeah, no, I mean, it is an interesting... My, my brain actually never even went back to that comparison, but it is a fascinating one. Well, um, it's my brain is stuck on Coach Mike Budenholzer and the fact I that know it is. he's holding Giannis <laughs> back, and this is just really clear evidence of the fact. Look, the best defense, by the way, for Coach Bud is that if Giannis did take on that responsibility, he would get into foul trouble and more quickly and easily than Anthony Davis. And we saw the impact of what happens if Anthony Davis gets into foul trouble in game three, right? The the Lakers look terrible. Everybody looks terrible. Um, and then that's why they, they lost that game primarily to me was because he couldn't stay on the court and mm-hmm. he just never caught a rhythm. So it's not like as black and white obvious of a strategic decision as I'm painting it. But I do think, especially you know going back to that second round series, when Butler's just going absolutely nuts in the fourth quarter, it's just a natural inclination for your best player to say, all right, you know, it's time for me to do my best here to shut it down. No, I I totally get where you're coming from and what you're saying. Um, I I also think that, you know, the Lakers could have won this game if they never made that adjustment. And even with that adjustment, like they were still, the the Miami Heat were still like so close to winning this game and probably still should have one could say I mean I know we're going to talk about some things that could have gone some bounces of the balls that could have gone um either way um this was just such a close game and uh and you know a couple shots go in either way um and uh the Miami Heat could have won so it was I, I think we we look at this adjustment and we we kind of need a an answer to why the Lakers won this game I still, you know, it's just really frustrating if you're a Miami Heat fan. And I think it could just be as simple as, again, like Kendrick Nunn is playing however many minutes Kendrick Nunn played. It's a brutal loss for Miami. I mean, because they played so well and so hard in game three. They got the game of Jimmy's life in game three. And you come back with full force. You're definitely overmatched. You're shorthanded. Bam's playing kind of heroically after missing time, right? And you're right there. And then there's, it's just, you know, as, as Spolster said, uh, you know, basically the, the Lakers just made a couple more things. The, the game was in the balance. It was there for the tanking and the Lakers just did it and the Heat didn't. What were some of those moments for you? Which ones stood out? Were there particular sequences or a shot here and there that you feel like were the pivot points for this game? I think there was one watching it live where I just knew that the Lakers were going to win after it happened. Um it was with a, a little over three minutes to go. Lakers were up two. 
Uh, LeBron was actually uh, defending uh, uh, Jimmy at this point. Jimmy dribbles into a wide open corner three and LeBron actually doesn't even close out. He kind of just gives him the shot. I don't know if that was because of exhaustion or if that was his, is, is if that was strategic thinking. Um, but Jimmy yeah. misses it. Yeah, strategic and... thinking by a 35 year old, right? <laughs> In the fourth quarter. <laughs> exactly. Uh, LeBron grabs the miss, just like bull rushes in transition, finds KCP in the right corner, KCP m- makes the three over a Tyler Hero closeout. I thought that that was, you know, that was base. It, it's like the swing there is so late in a game that was going back and forth. Where if Jimmy hits that three, uh, Miami goes up one. Miami is able to then set up their defense, and it's just a whole different final three minutes. I think. Oh no question. Forward. No, that one was huge. Just monster, monster shot by KCP in that particular moment. And you know he's been working on that. You know, run out, get to the spot, get your feet set, quick trigger type shot all season long. That's like one of his main responsibilities, and he absolutely delivered when it mattered. I think that that play from LeBron uh, illustrated. Uh, his impact throughout the second half of this game, especially later into this game, because mm-hmm. I, I just want to underscore this. Like the Lakers were very, very close to Frank, right? They were feeling the pressure big time. Even in the empty gym, you can just hear all the, the headlines. Are they going to blow the 2-0 lead? Now it's 2-2. They've got Bam back. All the momentum goes back the other direction if Miami wins that game, right? The Lakers could feel it. I mean, look, they, they have been the favorites the whole way. There is legitimate pressure on LeBron basically every moment. I think he told everybody after that game it, it felt like one of the biggest games of his life coming in. Um, <laughs> and maybe he's laying it on a little thick there. But no, at the same time, like, I mean, the internet will melt if the Lakers lost this series, right? I mean, it, it really would. There would be a backlash for sure. So um, that, think, that is an understatement, my friend. Right, right. So. I, that's why I, I give him a little pass on that uh, superlative comment from him because you know he understands what, he has to be in the middle of the backlash. I mean that would be not fun, right? Um, so especially when you've made it this far after three months in the bubble and everything else. So there mm-hmm. was a couple moments like Kuzma throws a pass away, Jimmy takes it the other way in transition. LeBron is just pissed, right? But he's able to kind of like pull himself together. Next possession down, he actually trusts Kuzma with the kickout corner three, same spot as the KCP three. He goes right back to him. He hits a shot. I thought that was a big moment. Can, Caruso- I, can, I, can I pause you real quick after that? Because that play, uh, Rondo went over to LeBron after Kuzma made that mistake and was talking to him and like trying to calm him down. And I think that that was you know going back to uh, uh, an article that I read about Rondo and how last season when, when LeBron was – you know, he would get very upset at the young guys, Lonzo and, and Ingram. This was pre-AD. And Rondo would go to LeBron, and whenever LeBron would use uh, poor body language to express frustration with the youngsters, Rondo would be like, yo, you have to instill confidence in these guys because they look up to you. And Kuzma was one of those players. And I, I, you know, I don't know for a fact that Rondo was saying something to that uh, something like that to LeBron in that spot about Kuzma, but it wasn't totally shocking to me that LeBron then went right back to him and he hit that shot. It, it, that all adds up to me because LeBron was so mad at Kuzma and it it made my eyes wide 
when he went right back to him on that very next play because um, I've just seen him not do that many times during his career, right? When he's yep. frustrated at somebody and just make different decisions, either put it on his own shoulders or just go a different direction. And it was a very crucial moment. There was another one where LeBron is super pissed off at Caruso for a defensive breakdown and he decides, okay, my response to this on the offensive end is to go get that tough lefty and one layup. And I think he followed that up with like five straight free throws where he's just kind of doing bully ball on the offensive glass and all this stuff, where again, they were right there ready to freak out and fray, you know, and, you know, lots of finger pointing and and talking and everything else. And, you know, LeBron was going hard on everybody. Like if I'm Rondo, maybe I go over to Zach Zarba and uh, and John <laughs> Goble, try to build up their confidence after this performance because he was really, <laughs> really pissed off throughout this entire game. I've never seen a player that I can remember. And maybe it's because we can actually hear everything in the bubble and it's just nonstop lobbying from LeBron on these officials. So um, I agree with your KCP3 as one of those big moments. I would also say that Kuzma decision and that lefty layup kind of lumped those together. I think that would be another one to me that was kind of a pivot point. Um, which other pivot points did you see? I mean, honestly, like, and this this is very general, but it goes and speaks to an advantage that the Lakers have had this entire series. Just their ability on the offensive rebound and their aggressiveness on the on the offensive glass where they send guys uh, they send Rondo, they send Caruso, they send Danny Green, they send KCP uh, uh, into the paint to try to create second chance opportunities instead of retreating back uh, to set up the defense on the other end. And it's just like really paid off for them. And it's such a backbreaker whenever you get a stop against the Los Angeles Lakers where AD misses a shot or LeBron settles for a three because he's exhausted and it bricks. And then Rondo comes in out of nowhere and gets the rebound and then they're able to set up their offense again. So that happened multiple times in game four. For to sure. Just a devastating effect. Great point. I mean, some of LeBron's free throws came off the offensive glass where he's scrapping with, you know, like Jimmy or Bam or someone like that. Look, their small lineup is still big, right? I mean, that's what we that's one big takeaway here is like even when they take their center off the court, if you have AD and LeBron as your 5-4 and, you know, you're going against Bam Jimmy in those matchups, you're bigger, longer, stronger at both spots and and their wings are pretty darn big too. So, um we set, we definitely saw that come through. Any last pivot points before we move on? Basically every KCP basket like <laughs> I just want to real quick oh like, now who's rich Paul come on Michael no 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 like I'm sorry but you know I was looking through the timeline as one does throughout game four and particularly after we kind of knew who was gonna win in the last 90 or so seconds and like I don't I don't know like KCP was in his role Right. And he hit some threes like that. That's basically my takeaway from KCP's performance. 15 points, five assists, which were nice. No doubt. That's really not what he normally does. But the adulation that came and and like the the flowers that were being thrown in KCP's direction, like I just I didn't really agree with the extent of the praise on him, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. 
Look, if, if Marcus Smart buries that three in front of the bench and then goes through oh, and has that, has that crazy layup through traffic, <laughs> I mean, you're building him a statue, Michael. So come on now. Let's... How dare you compare Marcus <laughs> Smart with KCP? Wow. Uh, I know. One's about to be a champion. There's a big difference. You're right. Um, no, <laughs> let's, go, uh, let's go back to this adjustment just for one minute because sure. I always get into this adjustments. I mean, when you're doing the finals analysis and we're doing multiple podcasts a week during these finals, as I've done for years, it always drives so much of the conversation. This one, it caught me by surprise a little bit, um, as I mentioned, and it just got me thinking like, what are the all-time best finals adjustments that we can remember or our favorites? I think the most obvious one that people point to would be like the Andre Iguodala into the starting lineup. I mean, that decision got multiple stories. You know, who came up with it in the video room and it was pitched to Steve Kerr. And, you know, that adjustment wound up basically changing the NBA for like the next four years straight, right? Now all of a mm-hmm. sudden it's small ball and spacing and and all that and, and centers are going obsolete. So that was a, a very, very big one. And it was more offense oriented than anything. This Davis one was more defense-oriented. There was actually one the year before, which I particularly enjoyed, when the Spurs, who were basically playing two centers with Tim Duncan and Tiago Splitter in 2014, which seems insane to think about now, right? Um, They take Splitter off for Boris Diaw, and all of a sudden they have this beautiful offense. Everything's wide open. You know, they, they get like 70 points and a half. They just seem like completely overwhelming against the Miami Heat. And that winds up, you know, pretty much ending that series early. I've always had a soft spot for that adjustment. Um, do you have other favorites or all-time adjustments that uh, stick out when you see something like Davis on Jimmy and everyone's going nuts about it? Um, you know, wh- what? Uh, where does your mind go? I mean, when I first read this question on the outline, my head went to Iguodala first and foremost, you know, starting in game four, I think, and then they, they cruised for the rest of that series. Um, Maybe his then, nickname should be the adjustment. What do you think? R- real <laughs> that's, catchy. That's a pretty. I like that though. That's that's not bad. Uh, I know uh, he you, hates. You Iggy. would. You would like yeah. that. The dorkiest <laughs> possible thing I could come up with is the only time you agree. I love it. Uh, um, but then right after that, uh, 2011 finals, uh, Rick Carlisle starting JJ Barea um, in, I believe it was game four, also, and then. I think like what is so fascinating about that adjustment by Rick Carlisle was that up until that point, like JJ Barea wasn't playing particularly great. Like he had two points in game one, five points in game two. Oh, I feel like six- he was a punchline before this adjustment, right? I mean, like I yeah, think there, there were some people who respected like what he could do, but wasn't he? kind of a joke like people just kind of like you know laughed at him in a, in a certain way I don't want to be too rude here because obviously he's had an incredible career I'm more sure. trying to capture the mood before that adjustment right yeah I mean it was a little bit out of left field like from my memory just trying to because like you know he's the smallest guy on both teams um, it felt slightly desperate almost I mean he was really uh, problematic for um, for the Miami Heat, just his pick and roll game. His his uh, like one thing about him that was very underrated, and I guess he's still <laughs> playing, so still is underrated. Um, but the way that you know LeBron would try to back him down in that series, I remember, and he drew like two or three key fouls where he just like you could call it a flop, but like 
he's so good at that to 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 faint like you are getting abused when no one is really even touching you yet like i really i I appreciated that about him but he was just so slippery after that and after he was inserted into the starting lineup you know dallas didn't lose another game in that series and miami really didn't have an answer for it so i thought that that was that's like a pretty big one to me i don't know if they win that series if they don't if rick carlisle does not make such an like not obvious adjustment while down in the series. Totally agree. It's a great one. I also feel like it changed the trajectory of his entire career, right? Like now he is the guy who kind of bamboozled LeBron, like, you know, his presence (laughs) on the court, like kind of like threw the heat for a loop. And like, you know, he's the little uh, David against the Goliath of the Heatles, right? Um, I just think, yeah, it's hard to explain exactly how he was treated before that. But I do feel like, that Mavericks team in general was underrated by basically everyone, including myself, heading into that. Dirk was not taken nearly as seriously or nearly as respected as he is after he won that title. People were just, you know, he was a fun guy to pick on. Everyone wanted to call him soft and he couldn't do in the playoffs. And, you know, he's a one-way player and all that stuff. I think all of their role players were also like individually underrated across the board. I think you know, 2020 NBA analysis would look at Sean Marion and get it, right? I'm not sure mm-hmm. 2010, 2011 NBA analysis really got it, right? Um, you know, Jason Kidd, I think, was still a little bit polarizing at that point. Obviously respected, but, you know, uh, never had quite done it. I mean, you just kind of go down the list. Uh, you know, Jason Terry, oh, is he just a loud mouth or can he actually deliver? Like there was a lot of different guys. I mean, Deshaun Stevenson, that's his own category, right? With his goofy t-shirts and all that stuff. Right. But I I think that Berea almost symbolizes all of that better than anyone because he's like the smallest package and came up the biggest in terms of impact uh, in ways that we didn't expect. So absolutely great adjustment. I want to read this question from Anton, Michael. He says, I have heard commentary about the 3-1 comebacks this year being possibly related to the weirdness of the bubble and that it wouldn't necessarily happen in a normal season. But I actually think the Cleveland Cavaliers 3-1 comeback in the 2016 finals showed teams that it's possible to do it and therefore it leads to other teams not packing it in and actually keep trying in those situations. As amateur psychologists, what do you think of my theory? It's a great question from Anton in Barcelona. Michael, he signed it with love. So we give you know love right back to our, uh, our friends in Spain. Um, here's the thing, Anton. Imagine the scene of this NBA Finals if Game 5 is happening at Staples Center after a 10-year title drought for the Lakers. They're coming back home up 3-1. They're wearing those black Kobe Bryant Mamba jerseys. Rihanna is in the crowd courtside. She's not skipping out on the virtual fan session like she did during game four. Absolutely breaking my heart by doing that. Jack Nicholson's going crazy. Every celebrity in town is paying $50,000 to sit courtside for this game. I mean, you know, the list goes on and on and on what type of an environment would be. Mm-hmm. Miami's not walking in there and winning game five. I'm sorry. That's just no. not going to happen, especially with LeBron's record in closeout games, especially with Anthony Davis, you know, one win from his first title, especially with the prospect of being able to go out and party in Hollywood all night after you win, right? It's just there's no possible way the Lakers are losing that game. You talk about the weirdness of the bubble. They definitely could lose game five. It's an empty gym. <laughs> They've already lost game three. Uh, there's a formula for Miami to do it. It's The margins are not very big, uh, but there's a possibility that they're able to kind of pull this thing off. 
And, um, you know, it's it's a challenging environment. Like, Le- I mean, even things like LeBron's son turning 16, right? Or LeBron tweeting that he can't sleep. And all these different kinds of things are just different than what you would normally expect during the finals. And so I think it, it does open up some, uh, you know, opportunity or a, a bigger possibility just by being on that neutral site court and just by hoping that somebody like Tyler Hero, who's been getting wide open shots all series long, catches mm-hmm. fire like he does against, um, you know, Boston, right? I mean, there are, are ways for Miami to kind of manufacture a win here. And now, are they going to pull off a 3-1 comeback? No, I would guess not. But I, I think that their chances of doing it, being able to play games five and seven on a neutral site as compared to the Lakers' home court, I would say it's like 10% or 10 times better rather, right? Like I might give them, you know, a 1% chance of doing that in a normal environment. I would say they got a 10% chance to do it right now. That seems like reasonable odds. I would say it's even higher than that, but also obviously if we were to spread this hypothetical out, you know, the Denver Nuggets do not beat the Los Angeles Clippers in the second. I mean, like, yeah, you know, you could go totally. On on no, I, I agree. Um, if the Clippers had played games five and seven at home in that series, they win, right? They probably win in five, honestly. Sure. Yeah. No, I, 100%. Um, so there's obviously that, but I mean, I, I give Miami, I might just be, you know, super naive slash foolish, but I give them a, a, a higher. Uh, winning percentage or odds or whatever you want to say. Uh, Put a number on it. Th- Put a number <laughs> on it, Michael. <laughs> I don't have a, a number. I mean, I've, I've honestly, since since game one, actually probably game two, I would not have called a coin flip either. But with Bam back and them kind of, uh, in Miami kind of settling into what their rotation is uh, without Dragic and getting more comfortable with that, I do think that, these games are a lot closer in terms of, you know, who can win and how how Miami is playing and like strategically. Well, real quick here, hit, if all games sure. are coin flips, right? Five, six, and seven. If those are coin flips in the bubble, I think that gives Miami like a twelve point five percent chance of doing this uh, coming back from a three one. So that's not too far off by ten percent. But would you give them even? Are, are you are you willing to go stronger than that? I would I, first of all, I I failed math miserably in well, I just hope about that every was grade. Right. So yeah, look, I, I mean, have, I have <laughs> no idea what's going on right now. Um, I'm pretty but, sure that's but, correct. I think if you do one over two to the third, you're going to get one over eight. I'm pretty sure that's sure. how that works. But I, I believe you. I believe you. Um, I mean, I don't. I don't know. Like, I I don't. I I don't think Miami's going to come back and win. I should say that right off the top. But like, you just watch how these two teams are playing, and you watch how specifically Miami's defense, what they are doing to uh, LA's offense. Like, they're forcing these threes. They're limiting opportunities in the paint. I have a stat for you: forty six percent of LA's shots in this series have been threes. Uh, coming into this series, that number was 35%. Uh, only 40% of LA shots have been in the paint in this series. Coming in, that number was 50. So, like, Miami is doing a terrific job of limiting transition opportunities, uh, forcing the shots that they want LA to take. You know, Markeith Morris is taking a, sh- a bunch of shots. Um, Caruso, KCP made them pay, but those are the shots that, you know, contested threes, either above the break or from the corner. That's what Miami wants. They do not want LeBron just kind of sashaying his way into the paint and finishing as he can basically still do regardless, but not as often. Um, So 
I look at that and I see a team that is executing their game plan really well. And, you know, minus the flurry that we saw in the fourth quarter of game four from the three point line by Miami, they shot the, that, the, the three ball like really bad um, in the first three quarters, uncharacteristically so. So, like, I don't know. Like, you get a couple guys get hot. Hero gets hot. Duncan Robinson gets hot early on. They build a little bit of a lead. They have Bam. Bam's going to play more minutes. Like, I, you could easily just talk me into them winning the next two games, honestly. You could definitely talk me into them winning game five. Um, it has been a very tight series, especially since uh, the, the last two games. And I'm glad to see it, you know, because I was really frustrated and a little bit down with how Miami played in the first two games. It felt like we were getting this letdown. And to me, even if they lose in five, I won't remember this finals as a letdown. I will remember it just kind of having some twists and turns. And okay, you know, the Lakers experience and the Lakers top in talent. And they just get just enough in the supporting cast and they go ahead and, and, and win the title. I'm not saying I'm going to remember it the most fondly of of any final series I've covered. Actually, it would probably be in the you know the lower ten or or twenty percent. <laughs> yeah, it, you know it's it's in the conversation for the worst, but it's a lot better than the sweep would have been, and, and that's why I want yep. to give Miami credit there. You decided it was time to upgrade your outdoor deck, so you got all the essentials to do it. You ordered a power washer, a set of patio chairs, and a shiny new grill. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping and up to 5.25% as a preferred rewards member, which you put towards your most essential deck addition, a bird feeder. Apply for yours at bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation. After the trip, I drove my van back with all my equipment. I could hear a little bit of whimpering and crying. When Eldon Kidd, a father of five running rafting tours through Mexico, found two Guatemalan girls stowed away in the back of his tour van one night, it changed his life forever. They pleaded with me, can you bring us to the border? I agreed. And I thought, can I do this again somehow? From the team behind American Skyjacker comes an epic new crime series, American Coyote. Being a coyote is a dangerous and illegal business. You have to be prepared for the worst. The unbelievable tale of a legendary coyote named Eldon Kidd. American Coyote. Listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Let's shift gears here a little bit because I could hear something in your voice, Michael, when I mentioned LeBron's comment about this being one of the biggest games of his career. You did that dismissive chuckle that the Open Floor Glow members can always hear from you. What gives? Are you taking shots here at LeBron or what? I I just strongly disagree that like game four with your team up 2-1, I understand that you know it would have been 2-2 and whatever, but like... Like it was every finals game's big, but this man has played in two game sevens in the NBA finals. Uh, you know, game six of the Eastern Conference Finals against the Celtics in 2012 in Boston was a do or die for his legacy and how he like the conversation of whether or not he could be the greatest player who ever lived. If he loses that game, he plays poorly in that game, and it's over. There's like no more questions to be asked. The uh, player empowerment era probably doesn't take off in the way it did. I mean, that was a humongous fork in the road moment of his career. And in my opinion, the most important game and the biggest game and the biggest performance by him. Um, but like, 
I would even go back to game two of the 2012 finals where they're down 0-1 to the Oklahoma City Thunder. Um, he has that like phantom no-call foul against KD in game two. Do you remember that? Where oh, yeah. no whistles called. He's got his hand on him. It was a clear foul. No, um, they I barely actually, win that game. I got a ride home that night from Royce Young. He was kind enough mm-hmm. to be my host, took me back to my hotel and I could just sense all of Oklahoma's heartbreak um, on that ride home. You know, that was just a tough end game. Yeah. So, I mean, that game, I feel like that was, I don't want to say any game two is a must win, but if if the Heat lost that game and they went down 0-2 like that, uh, I, I think it would have been very difficult. Um, particularly, we're going back to a point in LeBron's career where he had not ever won the championship. Uh, so the pressure okay. was just humongous. Point taken here. Let's quantify yeah. this. I mean, not sure. a top 10 game, top 20. Where are you putting this one? Because there were stakes, right? And look, if I'm going to sure. defend LeBron, if I'm going to defend LeBron, it, the idea is like, this bubble sucks. It's time to go home. If they lose game four, it's going to be, it's probably going seven, right? And that's pretty dicey. And you're giving Miami that confidence that they thrive on. And you're facing an absolute storm of questions mm-hmm. and takes and all these other things. He's clearly, um, as I mentioned, I mean, it seemed to me like the pressure was getting to all these guys. You know, they were right on the verge of cracking there at times during game four. Um, so I think that maybe some of his comments is being made out of relief. At the same time, I also think that he's falling victim to this idea of the superlatives, which, you know, is is just running amok in our society right now. Like even watching the vice presidential debate last night, they (laughs) open it by calling it the most important vice presidential debate in the history of our country. Can we fact check that claim, please? And then the main takeaway from the debate is that a fly landed on Mike Pence's head and we're already moving off of this debate. 12 hours later, right? So are we completely sure that was the most important vice presidential debate in the history of our country? Probably not, right? We just fall victim to these kinds of um, these exaggerations or these superlatives. And LeBron's been doing it a lot, frankly. He's called the bubble run the most challenging of his um, of his career, right? The biggest test. And in some cases, I'm inclined to uh, give him a pass because this bubble is really tough. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. no joke, and I think that's where he's coming from when he when he puts that biggest game label. It's this idea of, um, you know, the finish line is right in sight, and it would be such a mental test to have lost that game and have to kind of regroup after having such a commanding 2-0 lead. But I also agree with your point, which is if you've had a, a career as long and distinguished as LeBron's, um, it's really kind of a tough sell here so how many games do you think just roughly have been bigger than that one 20 i don't know um i i mean i'd have to as you said i'd have to fact check and i'd have to go dig in the crates and try to figure out a specific answer for you but maybe you know trying to get into lebron's head for two seconds like Maybe he felt this way in terms of it being the biggest game of his career because those previous examples he was at his physical prime and you know if he were to fall down not game six obviously because that was an elimination game in the in the conference finals um but like his ability to overcome just athletically and like i I say this as someone who's just like you know he did not look like he had it he did not look like he had lift in that game 
through certain segments in ways that you just don't see from LeBron James. Michael, he um, told us that the turnovers were the problem after game three when he had eight, and he came out and had five in the first half of game four. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, I mean, he hasn't been at his best, and I think this whole situation might be wearing on him. That's that's totally fair. Uh, so from that perspective, sure, I, you know, I'm sure he thinks that it was a humongous game. Um, but while we're speaking in superlatives, I, can I quickly throw in that this is also the easiest run in terms of competition that he's ever faced going to the finals? Is that okay to say? I thought you were going to call me the best podcaster you've ever come across. I was getting excited there when you no, started saying, oh. <laughs> well, well, I know that that would be that's not a superlative. That's just a fact, Ben. Oh, brilliant! Well done, thank you, thank you, Michael. It's, mm-hmm. it's feels so nice um, to be in such <laughs> prestigious company. Uh, well, here's the thing: I saw your column on this easiest thing, and I I gotta push back, Michael. Come on, I mean we're we're stuck in this bubble. You know, neither one of us has seen Brawny in three months. You know, it's it's heartbreaking. Come on. Uh huh. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I know you agree with that take. I know deep down you do. Well, here's here's first of all, if you're just going to say like how many games did it take? How much did they win by? How much did they kind of control the action? Did he have the talent advantage over the opponents? Yeah. How many future Hall of Famers did he have to play? I mean, I think all of those things, you know, from a strictly basketball sense, are yeah. true because LeBron's been the underdog. He's because he's usually been in the Eastern Conference playing against dynasties from the Western Conference, the much mm-hmm. stronger and more accomplished conference of the two. Um, never forget it, Michael. Um, so I think from that standpoint, uh, th- there's some validity, uh, validity to what you're saying. The other point I'd make is that LeBron has never had a teammate have as good of a postseason run as Anthony Davis has had this year. The big okay. debate coming into this season was AD versus uh, Kyrie versus Dwayne Wade, who's the best sidekick? I will still go Wade because he's a more accomplished overall player. Um, I think that's his title to hang on to for a while here, and and AD might eventually eclipse him. But if you're saying which of LeBron's teammates has had a better showing start to finish through the playoffs, it's Anthony Davis by a mile. I think the only people who have had better player efficiency ratings than AD at this point during a playoff run with at least 15 games are LeBron, Jordan, and prime Shaq. That's the whole list. And that includes his, um, his weaker games, uh, offensively in games three and four of the finals. Um, mm-hmm. you look at his other metrics, true shooting percentage. You've pointed that out. He's way up there with, you know, like Pete, Kevin Durant, um, the wind shares per 48 number. He's super high on that because he's just contributing in so many different ways. And the clearest example of, of how good Anthony Davis has been is that he's actually in a finals MVP debate with LeBron. And if they wind up winning this thing in five, and there's never been a situation in LeBron's career where there was ever a debate about finals MVP when they were winning the title. The debates have come in when he was so good that he's on the losing team getting himself into conversations about does he deserve it over Andre Iguodala. But there's never been a situation where people were like, you know what? Actually, you know, Dwayne Wade or Chris Bosh, they really deserve it. Maybe we should give it to Ray Allen for that shot in the corner. Like that was never, uh, never a thing. And certainly even when Kyrie's going off in 2016, he never entered that equation either. So uh, that, that's why can I, I would... Can I, can, I, can I ask you a quick question? Because you said that Wade was... You'll take Wade as his best teammate ever, right? Um, in 2011, let's say that the... This is a tough hypothetical, but let's say the Miami Heat win that series. Like, Wade was really good in that series. Do you think that... Uh, it never really got to the point where we were talking seriously about finals MVP, but do you think that Wade would have won finals MVP over LeBron in that series? 
It's a great hypothetical. I do think he would. I believe that was his best um, statistical playoff run of any with LeBron. Um, and I no, mean, no question. It's it's really hard to look the other way on a couple of those performances from LeBron late in that series, right? And I also think you still had the narrative juice of it kind of being Wade's team, right? And LeBron was still the new guy. So you probably could have gotten away with it. I think by that 2011, 2012 season, LeBron was just the guy, right? That was sort of the turning point of like, hey, this is his league, MVP, finals MVP, first title. And it was just sort of an overwhelming thing. LeBron hadn't quite settled out into that role in the previous year. So um, I, I do think that Wade would have won the finals MVP had they won that title. Fascinating. I I think that AD is his best teammate ever. Um, I Like not even close and... I you know I'm not forgetting or discounting the amazing finals performance that Kyrie Irving had in 2016. Um, Kyrie's not even with, in this conversation. No, I mean, he's thing. really not. No, he's not. Well, so this. what's uh, the case? Are you making a case like in a vacuum, like pure talent? Because you know Wade, he's got a lot of accomplishments, and AD is only 27, right? He's got a ways to go too. I mean, we could say that AD will eventually retire as a more accomplished player than Wade, but it feels like you're you're selling short the old guy here, you know, the, uh, the, the heat, uh, eh, the heatle. You know, I, you know, I, all respect to Dwayne Wade. I think he's a great player. One of the best three or four shooting guards ever, probably. Right. Um, but no, I'm, I'm, I think that AD, uh, you know, I think AD will have a better career, honestly. Like, the fact that he hasn't even really reached his peak yet and he's already just irrepressible on both ends of the court and the fact that we're even having a discussion as old as LeBron is, LeBron is still remarkable on the court. Like he's just, he's been incredible throughout this entire playoff run and, uh, uh, you know, his statistics are through the roof in this series, even with the struggles that we've been discussing, the fact that we're even having a conversation about one of his teammates as the finals MVP. And I personally think AD is the finals MVP. And uh, I think he's also the most talented and, and more important, maybe, and maybe not more important. I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore. But I think that the fact that we're having this conversation about better player on the Lakers right now is just a testament to AD and how like just absurd he is as a basketball player. And we spent the first 20 minutes or so of this podcast talking about the big adjustment that the Lakers made, right? And that adjustment was take LeBron off of the other team's best player, put AD on, and success. Yeah, I think you should have said voila there, but I agree. I mean, that was <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a great way to underscore AD's value. The only argument I would say, and I would still have LeBron as finals MVP, I just think everything they do offensively looks completely different without LeBron. I think 80s offensive efficiency plummets. If LeBron's not on the court and you just have a typical a point guard over the course of an entire game, I think that the Lakers role players' flaws would show through so much that you would just be in a situation where if 80s their best guy offensively, it's really frustrating. And um, you know they're just hoping to win just an absolutely ugly series. And you know can they get by defensively? If they're playing a center when they don't have Anthony Davis, I mean, it's possible, you know, is LeBron just able to orchestrate the game still at a high enough level that he can get it done? 
I think the the real lesson is, you know, Miami would have a great chance, you know, if uh, if one of those two superstars was gone for LA. It's not that they're shallow, um, you know, their their bench is like super weak, or that their you know supporting guys are terrible. It's just that those two main guys have both been so good consistently throughout this postseason. That's driving so much of the success for what so, they do. Real quick, I have a I have another hypothetical for you that just kind of sprung into my head. I hope this isn't disrespectful, but I know that it'll be taken that way. Bring it on. Bring it on. Do you think that if the roles were reversed and, you know, we're saying just for the sake of this discussion that um, let's say that, uh, you know, in the same manner that Bam Adebayo injured himself and was unable to play in game two and, and more importantly, game three, where Jimmy Butler had that performance, do we think if the roles were reversed and Anthony Davis was unable to play that LeBron would have a performance like Jimmy Butler's in him at this point? I think so. And there's a decent chance he breaks it out in game five. <laughs> it's it's possible. <laughs> I mean, look, I, he's hit some pretty high levels here during this postseason. I know there's people who are going to nitpick his numbers, and I do think he's been pacing himself quite a bit. And he doesn't have the lift at moments. We've definitely seen that. I agree with it. He's had to scrap for his points and his contributions in ways um, that we're not accustomed to. He's not the same guy physically as he was in the 2018 finals. Not even close, right? There's a clear difference. But it's more about the mind. It's more about the control. It's more about the orchestration. He can just do things that Butler yeah. can't do and, and really nobody else can do. You know, speaking of Butler, I wanted to ask you another quick question before we start to close up here. Um, we got a very uh, funny hypothetical question that came in from Owen. He writes, I had a thought. Would Jimmy Butler have been able to make it work with Jim Boylan as his coach in Chicago? We know Jimmy loves to work hard. He would have loved running suicides and doing push-ups in practice. I doubt that they win a title, but the Bulls may have missed a chance at a match made in heaven. Love the work you guys are doing. Keep it up. Thanks, Owen, for that email and this hypothetical. It's it's very funny, Michael, in hindsight, because they went from Thibodeau, you know, a very tough-minded coach, to Hoiberg, like the least tough-minded, most player-friendly coach you're ever going to see, back to Jim Boylan, this tough-minded, you know, uh, hard-nosed coach. Have you ever seen that with your friends in their relationships, you know? Maybe they date date someone who likes to party, <laughs> and then they switch it up and date someone who's maybe more of a bookworm, and then they switch it back up because they don't like that, and they go back to the party person. They just swing wildly from uh, pole to pole. I've definitely seen that happen, um, you know, from my friends, and that's exactly what the Bulls did here. It makes even less sense in hindsight, I'm not convinced that Jimmy could make it work with Jim Boylan. What do you think? It's either we're living on two sides of the extreme, right? Like either it works great and they love each other and they compliment each other after every game to the media and the Bulls make the playoffs and maybe maybe win a playoff series. Who knows? Um, they're competitive. They know who they are. Um or Jimmy is arrested for second degree homicide. Those are like <laughs> the two on, possible. <laughs> those are the two possibilities, in my opinion. Oh boy, he's joking, everyone. He's joking. Um, well, here's the thing: Jimmy would like this idea of accountability. The punch clock. Jimmy's into punch clocks. He would be the person who'd said, "I want to have the earliest <laughs> time on my punch clock." Right. I think the problem is there was something missing from Boylan, whether it's. An internal credibility, whether it's a lack of head coaching experience, whether it was a communication ability, whatever it was, 
his attempts at accountability never connected with those other players, right? So I think Jimmy would be open to that message. But if you have a coach who's selling something that people aren't buying, that will turn every star player off immediately, right? You go back to that David Black situation in Cleveland. Like, he had a great track record. A lot of people spoke very glowingly of him. Ultimately, he was trying to pitch stuff that LeBron and some of those other players in Cleveland weren't trying to hear, and it was just a matter of time before he was out of there, right? Like, he just, he never really built himself up that way. And I think that, in hindsight, the Bulls' young players were actually pretty charitable in their treatment of Jim Boylan, even though some shots were fired at various points along the way or, or subtly kind of subtweets <laughs> yeah. along the way. Like, they never really came out and roasted him completely. You know that the private group chats were a lot harsher than what came out publicly. And I think just in Jimmy's situation, like, you know, we know how confrontational and how much of a straight shooter he is. If those kinds of feelings were bubbling below the surface, Jimmy's bringing them to the surface, right? And so I just think uh, it it wouldn't have been a match made in heaven. I'll say that. Yeah. I mean, you say that some things were kind of like the statements weren't as volatile as you would think in public as they would have been in private, but actions also speak louder than words. And there was a near mutiny and uh, there was a, a leadership council was assembled. So I think that, uh, you know, we've rehashed this a million times. It was a total disaster. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if Jimmy, uh, I don't know how, J- I mean, Jimmy thrives on chaos. So we talked about it in the last episode and, and he thrives on confrontation and all that. But I think this would have been too much for him to, uh, to navigate. I'm picturing Jimmy wearing one of those United Nations headsets that they offer to the delegates uh, sitting at the leadership <laughs> council, you know, like really weighing in thoughtfully on some real, you know, important conversations like how many wind sprints are we going to run and everything else. I just think this is more of a Jim Boylan thing than a Jimmy personality thing. You know, I think ultimately he will not get another chance at a head coaching job because there was just something missing there in terms of how he was connecting with players. And you just never know if guys have that credibility or not. I mean, Tibbs has definitely been able to mold players in different spots into his way of thinking, even though he's incredibly hard-nosed and traditional. Um, There's been some other coaches who have had success with that approach. Spolstra is an amazing example of that. It's, It's pretty wild how demanding he is of his players, especially when it comes to defensive responsibilities. And the fact that they respond to it is incredible and they have for so long. Um, But, uh, you know, that style of coaching these days is not for everybody and not everyone can pull it off. I just don't see that being a match. All right, Michael, a lighthearted question to close comes in from Jacob. He says, I understand as a devoted open floor member, I'm a bit biased, but Michael the Podpina is one of the best writers in the game today. More superlatives, Michael. Michael's thorough analysis, interesting interviews, creative ideas, and emphasis on social justice more than make up for the occasional style pieces that he does for GQ. (laughs) But this dude needs to step up his butterfly knowledge. The annual monarch butterfly migration in North America is one of the coolest natural phenomenons in the world. Each fall, thousands of monarch butterflies head south for the winter, some traveling as far as 3,000 miles. Mexican folklore explains the monarchs as beloved ancestors returning just in time for Dia de los Muertos, which is similar to Halloween. Think of the monarchs like an annual migration of top free agents to the Western Conference or power forwards to the New York Knicks. 
incredible analogies from Jacob. I'm glad he buttered you up a little bit before, you know, ruthlessly tearing down your butterfly knowledge. Michael, what do you have to say for yourself? I'm, I love this email from Jacob for a variety of reasons. I like learning things. Um, and I, I'm dumbfounded that butterflies can fly 3,000 miles. That is another thing that I did not know before reading this email. So shout out to Jacob. Um, I bet, Ben, that you did not know any of this either, regardless of what you have to say for yourself. Uh, so Jacob knows more about butterflies than you, and that's, that's all I have to say about it. Look, first of all, I knew that butterflies migrated. I absolutely knew that. Um, I, I suspected that they had gone south for warmer weather when I made my comment on the last podcast about there not being as many butterflies. I, you know, <laughs> that was like a 50-50 guess. I mean, it was north or south, right? I knew that they went that on that kind of a, a path. And I was pretty confident that they went south for the winter. And so I'm glad to be validated. I just want to point out and put this, um, you know, on your, on your mental landscape, Michael, um, I use the Calm app and Headspace for meditation, um, mm-hmm. and uh, it's been very helpful for me here over these last couple of years. The Calm app actually has like a 20-minute long discussion and explanation of the monarch butterfly migration in its sleep section. So they've got a very nice kind of ASMR-type voice reading to you about the monarch butterfly migrations. Actually, on the West Coast is where they're focused, but... Um, you know, just in case you do want to learn more and at the same time you want to get to bed a little bit earlier, Michael, let me recommend that to you and all of our listeners. I'm speechless. First of all, that's, that's amazing. Um, I thank you. I, yeah, I'm, I'm speechless right now. (laughs) Okay. Well, be sure to check it out. We'll we'll wait to hear back from you. You sound really, really interested. (laughs) All right, Michael, (laughs) I think we've reached the end of another episode of open floor. Thanks for that awesome email, Jacob. Uh, you made both of us laugh the other night when we saw that one guys, check us out on Apple podcasts by searching for open floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down, it will say rate and review tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Don't want to guilt trip you guys, but I've been stuck in a bubble for three months. I think we're up over 2,100 reviews, Michael. So if these listeners have not reviewed us, can you please do me a solid? Show me a little thank you for all these uh, these days here at Disney World and go ahead and give us that five-star review and, and write some kind words. We would really appreciate it. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golliver on Twitter at Ben Golliver. Be sure to check out my Washington Post newsletter. Sign up for that on my Twitter page. Michael is on Twitter and Instagram at Michael V as in Victor Pina. As Jacob pointed out, Michael's been doing phenomenal work, all sorts of interesting interviews with different voices around the basketball universe. Be sure to check those out at GQ and 538. All right, Michael. Until next week, when we may be back to discuss the end of the NBA Finals and the possibility of an offseason, I will talk to you. Talk soon, Ben.